This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North, 4.02 Eastern Time, uh, a point that is as meaningless as it comes if you're listening after the fact on podcast, but know that that's what time it is right now if you want to get a big, a big, a little bit of context in the show. So if, uh, you know, the whole world goes to hell in a handbasket at, you know, I don't know, 4.47, you'll know that I wasn't just not reporting the story, it had not happened yet by the time this show went to air, but we are, as we try to be more often than not, live, and we're going to have Lauren Gunter, the fantastic Alberta institution, the legend of a man, the columnist, with us to talk about the column of his that the Trudeau government literally wanted censored from social media. So that's something that will be coming up very shortly. And I also want to talk a little bit later on about some other odds and ends, some bits and pieces, some uh, potpourri, as they say. Uh, But I have to start with a bit of a first world problem here, because I always like to fancy myself a man of the people. And like all men of the people, I have an espresso machine in my home, which I was cutting it very close and almost missed the beginning of the show because I had an espresso extraction incident, uh, which is to say the machine ran out of water as I was trying to extract the espresso shot, which makes for a bit of a bitter, um, some might even say, um, is the, the proper word astringent taste to the espresso? Uh, but I nonetheless am plowing ahead, and like most people in this country, I'm settling for uh, crappy coffee right now because that is what I ended up making for myself. But I think I have enough energy to get through the next little while here. I want to talk about the crime wave that we're seeing in Canada, and I want to just preface that by saying A lot of the times, news coverage of crime does not actually equate to bona fide crime statistics. So sometimes there are periods where uh, we perceive that crime is more rampant, but it's actually that it's being covered more or we're noticing it more. Uh, The problem with a lot of official statistics is that they are very much lagging indicators. By the time we get the data to substantiate what we've seen, it's years later. So I, I think in the meantime, we have to defer to people's experiences to some extent, and we have to look around and see what it is that's actually going on around us in the world here. And I don't think few people, well, let me take a step back. Most honest, real people, I'm not talking about dyed-in-the-wool partisans, but real people are looking around and seeing crime, maybe not at record levels, but certainly at significant levels, and certainly higher than it's ever been in recent years. You talk to, in pretty much any city in this country, someone who owns a business in a downtown area or in an area that is uh, often replete with drug use or gang violence, and they're going to tell you exactly what they're seeing. You've got businesses shuttering because they cannot deal with what's happening there, either for public safety reasons or even just for insurance reasons. 
And there was an interesting study that came out that, to be honest, I the headline didn't really do justice. The uh, headline in a, a CTV story, polls suggest Canadians feel less safe than they did before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Now, when I first saw that headline, I assumed it was a column about the COVID worry warts. I assumed that it was about people uh, that just believe they need their 17 N95 masks to walk down an outdoor street. And I was about to do a segment about just the brokenness of humanity right now and then i i read the story i read the study it was talking about and realized okay this isn't actually about covid safety it's about crime and just people sort of comparing where they are now and where they feel their communities are now with where they were three years ago which is when you know for the last time people were uh, actually able to walk out and about and see their communities and allowed to leave their homes and, and all that and if you look at these numbers here, it, it's very stark. So 32% of those surveyed, and it's a poll, so take it with a grain of salt, say that crime has gotten much worse in the last three years. 32% say it's a little worse. So combined, I'm no math expert, that's 64%, which is just shy of two-thirds, who would say crime and violence have gotten worse than the last three years would suggest it was at the beginning of that time. And that is quite significant. When you've got two-thirds of people saying that they think the country is significantly less safe than... I mean, three years is not a long period of time. We're not talking about people saying, yeah, when I was a kid, it was better. We're talking about people saying, you know, three years ago, life felt safer, the world felt safer, the country felt safer than it does today. And again, just for context, a quarter of the people said it didn't change. 8% said they don't know. 2% said things are better. So uh, the 2% are probably the ones that are out on bail that think things are all hunky-dory right now. And just to give you some stories from the last week alone... Here's one from Calgary. Man may seek bail after being accused of drugging and raping Calgary sex workers. Uh, here's another story from just this morning. 17-year-old dead after stabbing on bus in Surrey, British Columbia. Here's one from yesterday. Woman brought back to Canada from ISIS camps released on bail. Now, I believe in balance. I believe in telling the other side of the story. Not everyone is getting out on bail. Some people are languishing behind bars indefinitely, like, for example, Pastor Derek Reimer. Uh, he had the grave, vile offense of protesting a drag show. He wasn't in an ISIS camp. He uh, was not uh, killing someone on a bus. He was not drugging and raping sex workers. He did something much worse. He actually said, you should stay away from our children if you're trying to sexualize them. And he remains behind bars. Well, the lawyers are trying to get around to scheduling a bail hearing. So, uh, like I said, not everyone is getting out on bail. If you are a pastor that doesn't like drag shows, you are still behind bars, uh, but if you are a, a former ISIS alum, uh, well, I guess alums are all former. If you're an ISIS alum, you get out on bail. Uh, you have a case for bail if you are going after sex workers, and if you stab someone on a bus, you probably won't get bail there, but it's interesting if you look at a lot of the other stories of that ilk in recent months and find how frequent it is to see the line in the police press release that said this was an offender that was released out on bail.
If you really want to have some fun, you should actually go and subscribe to all the news releases from various police departments in this country. And you'll see when they release these offenders, they'll actually send an alert that says, we are releasing a high-risk offender into the community. Here's what they look like. Here's their name, what they do. And you say, well, that seems like the type of person we shouldn't release. But alas, that is not the way the system is oriented. Now, believe me when I say I am actually not one of these people that is the complete tough on crime to the point of just destroying people's lives for minor offenses they've made. No, I, I believe that carceral punishment, so putting people behind bars, should be done, uh, should not be taken lightly at all. But we're talking about violent offenders here. We're not talking about drug offenders. We're not even talking about people that have, you know, cheated on their taxes or whatever, which again, probably get to a worse treatment than uh, a lot of <laughs> formerly capital offenses do in, in this day and age. We're talking about people here who have done very heinous things, who will continue to do heinous things, and who are part of this system, not because they are victims of the system, but because people that interact with them in the world, real world become victims of them. So I'm not all that surprised that Canadians are finding things just a little wee bit less safe. And they're looking at governments, federal and provincial, and saying, you guys are the problem. You guys solved this. Uh, there was one just a side of a story here to bring up that the surge in suicidal and threatening calls to CRA call centers during the pandemic uh, was observed. So uh, people who work at the Canada Revenue Agency, again, not a, a department that I have much use for, uh, but the uh, people there are saying they've had more threatening calls in the pandemic. They've had more suicidal calls. And I don't know, maybe people, people think if they just threaten suicide, they'll get a break on their taxes or whatever. But uh, the thing there that I take from this is that government has presided over a breaking of society in the last few years. Government has pushed people to the brink. And I'm not saying it's Justin Trudeau's fault that someone wants to stab someone on a bus. I'm not saying it's Justin Trudeau's fault that someone wants to uh, kill themselves or tell a CRA worker they're wanting to kill themselves. But I do think government policies in aggregate on the whole have made things worse for so many people in this country and government is not there to come up with the solutions to those problems. Government's not there to say, okay, let's now help you through it. So they have created a public health crisis far worse than the pandemic uh, and are nowhere to be found when it comes to trying to solve it, which is probably just as well because I think this government has shown that it is incapable of providing solutions that don't exacerbate the problem and then create new ones. And such is, uh, here's for a, a subtle segue here, the case of the government's internet regulation, where again, they are creating solutions in search of a problem that doesn't exist. And if you want to get a little bit of a glimpse of what the government regulated internet space is going to look like, you needn't look further than what happened to a good friend of True North's and of uh, basically anyone who's picked up a, a newspaper in Alberta over the last many years, Lauren Gunter. Uh, this is a columnist who I actually have not had on this show. I had him on my old uh, radio show a couple of times. But Lauren Gunter dared to criticize the Canadian government's approach to refugees and immigration more broadly. And this was something that I guess the government didn't like. So what the government did is tried to get this 
thing pulled from social media. There's a record of government trying to get uh, this whole column taken off of Facebook and Twitter. And we didn't learn in the initial stories what article they were talking about, but thankfully, Lorne Gunter agreed to out himself here, and he joins us now. Uh, Lorne, what have you done? Well, uh, you know, I've, I've added some specifics to a non-specific uh, item that the government... Uh, admitted to in a in a freedom of well in a in a parliamentary question there was a a conservative mp asked the the liberals to give some examples of efforts they'd made to have uh, internet content controlled prior to their bill c11 which which still has not yet been proclaimed mm -hmm. but will become law very soon and so there was a whole list came back, 180 pages, some with one or two items on them. And one, it says an unspecified newspaper column about the Immigration and Refugee Board. Uh, Director of Communications asked Facebook and Twitter to remove links to this uh, uh, item uh, from their platforms. And so uh, I knew who it was uh, when, when I was shown it by editors. And uh, it, it was a piece that I'd written in September of 2021. I'd come into possession of a confidential internal document that the IRB had, that the chairman had drafted and was circulating among staff and professionals. Uh, that said, you know, we are now going to try and make it much easier for refugees to stay in Canada. Prior to uh, this policy that had not yet been introduced at that time, was just being debated. But, but prior to that, you had to show that you were under threat of torture or death if you were sent back to your home country. You had to show that you were, you know, you're in, in grave personal danger, or you had to prove that you met, met the United Nations criteria for what a legal refugee was. And this policy would have uh, said anybody who was suffering from any two discrimination, uh, and that would be poverty, age, uh, sexual orientation, race, ideology, religion, any of those. If you had two of those, then there was nothing that the IRB could do or very little that the IRB could do unless you were a security threat uh, to keep you out. As long as you got here, if you could say, you know, I'm gay and poor, I'm indigenous and I have views that my government doesn't like you know i i'm old and and i'm whatever whatever the other criteria might be if you had any two of these intersectionality uh, criteria uh, then there was very little that the adjudicators could do to keep you out of canada government didn't like that i had yeah. that uh, and so they then went to my editors and said uh, you need to retract this uh, or you need to correct all of the following factual errors. Uh, my editor said, there are no factual errors that we can tell, and we're not going to retract it. So then the director of communications at the time of the IRB, and we're not entirely sure who that was, uh, went to Facebook and Twitter in particular and said, we want you to take these down because they contain dangerous misinformation. And not surprisingly, that is the terminology that the liberals are using in their new bill to try and justify handing over the power to the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, or to an Internet Safety Board to take down dangerous misinformation, mm -hmm. even if it's legal, under their new law. So I, I, I yeah. think what, what we've seen with 
with their attempts to to take my piece off the internet is a glimpse of of Canada's future. Well, I fear you're right, and I, I just want to drill into the the who for a moment. Do you know if this was someone that came from the minister's office, being someone who's a a partisan liberal staffer, or from the departmental side, which is supposed to be uh, staffed by nonpartisan bureaucrats such as they are? Yeah, it, it, I mean, as near as we can tell, because there's very little information about who actually made the request of the social media platform. But as near as we can tell is a staffer from the Immigration and Refugee Board uh, who, who sought to have this done. But, you know, the so not someone who's supposed to be a partisan. No. No. So wow. it was supposed to it was a person who was supposed to be uh, a, a, an objective bureaucrat who was supposed to be doing, you know, objective work, not not a political operative who was trying to shine the government's apple. Uh, but, you know, if, from 2015 on, the liberals had been uh, going out of their way to appoint people who are ideologically friendly to their view of increasing immigration uh, to places on the IRB. So uh, the, the people, the, the permanent staffers at the IRB and the political appointees would have known on mm -hmm. what side their bread was buttered, uh, but they probably also would have ideologically agreed largely with with the liberals' efforts to increase. At this point, it, it seems funny now to, to 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 consider this, but you know, I I said this is this is kind of outrageous because the liberals are trying to, in one fell swoop, increase immigration to Canada, newcomers to Canada from 300,000 a year to 400,000 a year. Well, now they've blown well past 400,000 a year. But at the time, they were trying to increase immigration by a third Yeah. by using these tactics that were never going to be debated in Parliament by by increasing the uh, criteria, by, by greatly expanding the ways you could claim refugee status in Canada. And I... They didn't like that. But, you know, it's funny because they said, well, this this article is full of of uh, mistakes and misinformation. But I quoted enough of this internal document that they must have known I had the original. And yeah, this, and this was I mean, I, I remember the column. It was it was reporting. It wasn't just you sort of going on about some opinion or some theoretical thing. You had the document. They would have known that document existed. Yeah, they would have. And it was, you know, it was put out by the chairman of the board at the time, Richard Wex. And uh, and so they, they were just they were embarrassed that it had been found out before it could become policy and make a political mm -hmm. problem for the government. And and that's to me, that's the really troubling part is it because it was embarrassing to them, not because it was factually incorrect, not because I was inciting riots, not because I, I had done something illegal, um, but because it was embarrassing to the government. Uh, it, they got caught trying to sneak through a major change to immigration and refugee policy. They wanted it pulled down. And they used the cover of dangerous misinformation to try and make that happen. Now imagine, so they, they go to Facebook, they go to Twitter, both of whom said, no, there's nothing wrong about this. This isn't misinformation necessarily. It's, it's fair comment. Uh, but now imagine if under Bill C-11, the government hands the power to take those things down to the CRTC, which is full of government appointees, 
or even worse, to a board of internet safety, which is all government appointees. And they say, you know, it doesn't have to be illegal for you to take it down. If you think that this is dangerous misinformation, you, the safety board or the CRTC, have the power under this new law to start deciding what can and cannot be posted on the internet. And that just, that really frightens me. Well, it should. And, and I would point out to people here that in this case, the social media companies didn't take a what I would say is a particularly principled free speech view. They didn't defend your reporting. They just said, listen, your fight's not with us. It's with the Calgary Sun. It's not our original content was the line, which, you know, as far as social media platforms go, I, I think that's a win. They just said to the government, you know, we're not interested in playing this game. But you look at now, as you've alluded to, Lauren, the po policies that are coming down the pipeline, which would threaten uh, social media companies with very steep fines if they don't take down content that's identified as being wrong in one of the several categories and interestingly enough I, I was just at a a seminar about this and, and if you look at the categories they include misinformation in the same bundle as hate speech and child pornography so they're using uh online harm laws that are intended for child pornography to go after quote-unquote misinformation well, and they have a, a very wide, very broad definition of what constitute hate speech. When, mm -hmm. when I first started covering hate speech, which would be back in the late 90s, you had to convince a court that under a very narrow definition that was set out by the Supreme Court, the speech that w was published or, or broadcast had been hateful. Uh, according to some very narrow definitions. Now, really, hate is in the ear of the hearer. It's not in the mouth of the speaker. So if you say something that the most sensitive activist uh, in in a ide ideological cause thinks is hateful, then it's hateful. And, and that's what I worry about, too, is that, you know, it, Child pornography, fine. We, you know, we we should keep children safe yes. from pornographers. But if the, the the person in an activist organization who hears my microaggression feels that they're hated upon as a result of it, they can go to the internet or to the the upcoming internet safety board and say this is really bad. You should take it down. There's a good example of that too. The CRTC has been petitioned by EGAL, which is uh, an LGBTQ yes. rights group, uh, to bar uh, Fox News from being rebroadcast in Canada from the cable stations or the satellite services from carrying Fox News because Fox News has lots of people on it who don't believe that. Uh, uh, trans people uh, have a right to, uh, to to all the same protections that that non-trans people do, or that LGBTQ communities uh, they that's I'm actually not phrasing that properly. They, no, they, but I, I get what you're saying, and and as I was saying on the show yesterday, you know, imagine if that power were extended to Fox News clips on YouTube. So it's not enough that you take Fox off the air, but Canadians shouldn't be able to access Tucker Carlson on YouTube or Rumble or anything. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I, I have my own problems with Tucker Carlson. I remember when he was a bow tie wearing nerd uh, <laughs> about 25 years ago who wouldn't say uh, butter if his mouth was full of it. Um, and now I mean, he's the, the fire breathing dragon of, of the alt right. Um, and so I have trouble with him. 
But do I want to ban him? No. But I have the same problem with all sorts of commentators on the left. Do I want them banned? Because every time I listen to them, my blood pressure rises and my cardiologist tells me that I have to turn that off. No, I don't. That's what free speech is about. I, I, I like often to use the example of newspapers in London. There are eight daily newspapers in London, and none of them, except perhaps the Times of London, makes any claims to being balanced. What they say is that among the eight of us, there is balance. If you don't like what one of us is writing, you can read another one and you can find the opinions or the slant that you want. And, you know, that that's how you get to uh, balance and freedom of expression. But you don't do it through government regulators. No, and, and to go back to your column, I mean, if the government felt so strongly that it had been misrepresented in your piece, uh, why don't they do, you know, Katie Telford's favorite pastime of just planting some op-ed to rebut you in another paper? I mean, go down the street to the Calgary Herald and say, we'd like to denounce what uh, Lauren Gunter said. And I, again, I, I think, you know, the, the reality of it here is they knew that the facts were on your side. But if you don't like a particular bit of expression, respond to it with better expression. This is not a and, difficult concept. And my editors did offer Wex, the the chairman of the uh, of the Immigration Refugee Board, did offer him equal space to explain what it was that I had got Which wrong. is incredibly generous, it? by the way. Of course, of course it is. But that's I'm all for that. If you don't like what I've written and you you will take the time to to pen your own 600 words, have at it. That and and now especially it, it's it's a little bit trickier when you have a printed newspaper, but now that we all have websites with sort of unlimited space, that's exactly how it should be handled. But not going to the social media giants and saying this is dangerous misinformation, you should take it down. That, that is nothing but censorship. Lauren Gunter, Calgary Sun columnist. Glad you were not censored, and I'm glad to always continue to read your work. Thanks so much for coming on today, Lauren. You bet. All right, thank you. I, and let me just say, I mean, obviously what the government was trying to do to Lorne and his piece was what Twitter did to the New York Post when they published their reporting about Hunter Biden's laptop. And this was a, a big, big story that had waves and had momentum. People knew about it. People could go and read it for themselves. Twitter ended up apologizing for it. But funnily enough, the damage had already been done by that point. But uh, people who did not know about the story, who weren't plugged into the ins and outs of online regulation actually never saw this thing there was a mainstream media blackout there was a social media blackout and as a result uh, no one is actually seeing this story except for those who already knew about it and i imagine if that were to happen and this is not a slight at lorne or the calgary sun but they're smaller than the new york post imagine if this were happen happening to smaller outlets that do not have the ability to as easily blast out to people hey this article is being censored well that would mean that all of a sudden government bureaucrats are controlling the narrative what if they're doing this in an election? What if during an election campaign, you have these same government officials that are going to Twitter and Facebook and saying, you have to take down this column. Actually, you know, we think that's misinformation. Uh, even though it's quoting a document of ours, we think it's misinformation and has to go. So you can say in this case, yes, it all ended up as it was supposed to. The article wasn't censored and the bureaucrat can just go back to, you know, just claiming overtime and, uh, you know, extended trips. And at the same time, 
we don't know how many cases they are doing this with success. If they had a contact, again, if I wanted something taken down from Twitter and Facebook, I could, you know, go and there's a little report button in there. You can uh, report. And when you report something, it asks you, is this because, uh, you know, you're being misgendered or is it because they're threatening self-harm? And you can say, no, it's because it's misinformation. Um, for all we know, they had existing relationships with Twitter and Facebook or they say, oh, if you know, you want to get a column taken down, uh, why don't you uh, just call up uh, Sarah? She works in the account uh, takedowns department. And, and the whole point is that we wouldn't even know. So when you have this process taking place before the internet regulation bill is even there, imagine how bad it's going to be when government cements this power and actually starts threatening social media companies with fines if they do not comply. That is absolutely what's going to happen with this, uh, whether it's the Lauren Cunter case, whether it's the Agal Canada and Tucker Carlson case, or many others that come up that are eerily similar to this. There are people in the government right now and in civil society, activists, media types, politicians, that fundamentally do not believe in free speech. They do not agree with the premise of free speech. They do not agree with open debate. And they actually want dissent to be silent. And they probably wouldn't even hide that as much as you'd think. And these people, legitimately, I'm going to do probably next week, maybe in a couple of weeks, uh, a bigger deep dive into C11. Because I, I know that a lot of people still do not understand the ins and outs of it. They don't understand why it's so dangerous. And you have to look at it in the context of all of these other internet regulations. But I, I mentioned to Lauren, there are different categories of harm that are being dealt with into, under the auspices of what they colloquially call an online harms bill or an online safety bill. And I can't remember the whole list, but I do know that on that list is misinformation, disinformation. On that list is hate speech. And on that list is child sexual exploitation, CSAM they call it. Uh, child sexual exploitation materials, I believe. Uh, and the fact that they're taking the same tool and applying it to all of this stuff simultaneously, as though child porn is on the same moral and logistical and legal plane as a column about immigration from Lorne Gunter, is absolutely insane. And the reason they're doing it is so that when people eventually criticize this, when people like me stand up and say, whoa, 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 I do not support the government controlling free speech like this, it's so that the government can turn around and say, are you saying you support child pornography online? Mark my words, that is going to be what happens. They're throwing that in there just because it's the sacred cow that no one can criticize. Whereas I would fight back to them and say, no, actually, I care so much about child pornography. I want you to pluck that out and pass it as its own law right now. Uh, put huge penalties on platforms that do not take down child pornography. Throw the book because it's already illegal. The material is already illegal. They just need to talk about ways that they can better manage taking it down. Misinformation, disinformation, that is a far more contentious category. Uh, you know, I don't like dishonesty. I don't like dishonest reporting. But we already know that this government has a particular tendency to label as misinformation news coverage that it does not like. Look at Jerry Butts right now. I don't encourage following Jerry Butts on Twitter, and it's actually difficult to do because he's blocked, I think, like half of the people who listen to this show, but not me, oddly. Uh, Jerry Butts, though, he's been like on this cruise 
crusade at the Globe and Mail ever since the Globe and Mail broke the SNZ Lavalin story. And he's upset that uh, they took down We Charity. He's upset that now they're taking down the Trudeau Foundation. The entire board of directors for the Trudeau Foundation resigned this week, and Jerry Butts is uh, basically saying it's the media's fault, uh, not the fault of those who decided they wanted to take a big fact check from the Chinese Politburo uh, via a uh, prominent uh, connected businessman of sorts. But uh, nevertheless, I want to thank you all for tuning in to the show today. Uh, Just very briefly here, I'm not one of these huge AI junkies. I've talked about it in the past on the show. It was a bit of a novelty when it came out and you could actually type in and have these like conversations with the AI chatbot. And uh, the reason I will have a conversation with the AI chatbot is because the AI chatbot actually is interested in listening to me speak, which uh, not everyone is for uh, some reason. But uh, the thing about this is that like, it's actually not as crazy as some people think. And, like when you're, when you're reading it, for example, I told it to tell me a joke and I picked three like very random things. I think I said, tell me a joke about a Lynx, a MacBook and a slipper or something stupid like that. And the joke it gave me was uh, so stupid, you'd think the prime minister said it at a press conference. It was just completely nonsensical, and it wasn't particularly funny in any meaningful way. And I said, you know, if I were a comedian, I would be incredibly happy right now with the fact that AI is not sufficiently funny to displace me from being able to perform. Now, I, I should say a lot of modern comedians aren't particularly funny either. So maybe AI is, uh, is, is just going based off of what's already out there. But uh, the AI thing is not as ascendant as uh, people would like to believe. Uh, but, so I was actually very surprised to see that in the University of Toronto at St. Michael's College, starting in the fall, there's going to be a class about AI but the class is going to be conducted by AI. So it has like a professor who's designed it, but they're using research prompts and assignments and materials that have been curated by artificial intelligence. So uh, I, I again, I don't know if this is going to work out or not. I mean, if the professor uh, succeeds, then I guess he can just get fired because he'll have proven that the AI could do his job better than he did. So it's just like a very meta inception-like thing. The uh, St. Mike's to offer an experimental course taught by AI. So uh, even your university degrees now are being taught by this computer that is supposed to be smarter than you and will eventually take over from us, but uh, we're okay letting it happen. So I I think it's a bit of a novelty. I'm not one of these people that like thinks, oh, the cell phone, that's never going to catch on. No, I like technology. I like innovation. I like development. And I know this thing will continue to get better, but I don't buy that the AI revolution is here just yet. So uh, there will always be people around to screw everything up. You don't need machines to help with that. Uh, That's it for today. We'll be back. We'll be back on Friday with another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show talking about the decline of civilization, a big cheery topic to head into the weekend, but we'll liven things up with Fake News Friday. Uh, That's all coming up in two days here on True North. Stay tuned. Thank you. God bless. And good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.